morning, everyone. <clears throat> Father, we come to a familiar and beloved account this morning. Your son blessing the little children that are brought to him and even going so far as to rebuke disciples that would forbid it, Lord. I think this is much deeper than your son just picking up children. I really see it as the, the final, final sermon um, regarding children going to heaven and the kingdom belonging to them. Pray it can be a great encouragement to us, Lord, but more than that, there's all, or in addition to that, perhaps not more than that, there's also great application for us about being like children and what that means, Lord. And so I thank you for the wonderful spiritual truths about the kingdom of God belonging to children, but also ask that you'd reveal the wonderful application there is about how we can be childlike. I wouldn't say childish, but childlike in our faith. And so help us to know that difference, Lord, and help us to see what we can learn from children, be blessed by them, by their attendance at our church, by the blessing that they are when given to us as in, through pregnancy, uh, the addition when, they, um, when our church family grows through their births. And so I pray, Lord, that just so much uh, in this, help me to do justice to it, to see me as your vessel to deliver these beautiful truths. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title, of Mormon, the title of this morning's sermon is Let the Little Children Come to Me. We've been working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. <clears throat> we did pause for a couple weeks to lay a foundation that would help us understand these verses. But we find ourselves back in Luke 18 at verse 15. And if you're listening to this sermon, you might have some questions about babies going to heaven. More than likely, those questions were answered in the previous sermons. So you could be listening and say, can babies choose between good and evil? How can babies be saved without believing? Are there any saved babies in the Bible to convince us babies can be saved? What about original sin that babies are born with? All of those questions were answered in the previous sermon. So it's not to discourage you from asking me any questions. But if you do, I'd be happy to point you back to some of those messages where they were answered. Now, Sunday mornings, I'm always looking for new people. I don't spend too much time talking to people that I already know well. I try to see if any new people come to our church. And when I'm talking to them and they're looking around, if it's their first time here, guess one of the very first things that I hear from them. I love these pews and especially the color. No, I don't hear that from Peter. I hear, wow, you have a lot of children here. Very frequently, wow, that's a lot of children. Look at all of these children. And my response is always, yes, we have been very blessed here with so many children. I'm thrilled that we're, thrilled, that we're blessed with so many children here. Uh, every pregnancy is a privilege to be able to pray for. And I think I've told you before that if you ever watch the prayer list, we always have about the same number of women on it who are pregnant that we're praying for. And even if a couple of women end up delivering, then a few other women end up being, becoming pregnant. And I just want to say, I don't know if I say this often enough, but it's, our, it's my privilege to be able to pray for you if you'd like to have a child. I don't receive that prayer request as often as I think I should uh, or would like to receive it. And I don't know if there's a self-consciousness or sensitivity toward asking that. But I, I would love to be able to pray for any, anyone here to be able to uh, have a child, any couples. And there was at least one individual one time at a conference. I'm, I believe I sh- might have shared this before. He, was, he was, came, was coming toward me a Sunday morning. It was in the fellowship hall. And he had this stroller, and he... Did I tell you guys this story before? I did? Okay, we'll just move on. Never mind, I'm going to finish it. Okay, so <clears throat> this gentleman was coming toward me. It was one of those situations where I could not remember his name, although he clearly recognized me. And as a pastor, you want to remember everyone's name. 
And so he says to me, uh, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, well, I vaguely remember you, but I'm, I'm not remembering your name at this moment, if you don't mind telling me. And they, so he tells me, he says, do you remember how we met? And then it gets even worse because I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't, don't remember how we met. And he said, well, I was at a conference and you had, uh, was at a homeschooling conference and you had delivered this message on the blessing that children are. And you said that if there were any people who wanted prayer to uh, have a child, that they should, come, they should come see you. And so I came to your booth with my wife and you, and you prayed with us to be able to have another child. And I said, no, I talked to a lot of people at conferences. I'm sorry, I don't remember. And he said, well, I drove all the way here with my wife. And then he reaches in the stroller and he says, I wanted you to be able to meet the child that we ended up having that we believe after you ended up praying for us. And so not guaranteeing the same thing. <laughs> That's not the lesson to write down, but I am saying it would be a privilege. And if, and if you get pregnant after that, you got to bring the child so that I can pray for that child and, and rejoice with you over that. So I didn't have that in my notes. It's not going to count toward my time this morning. <laughs> John MacArthur said, we are tenderly disposed to little ones. We are drawn to them, to their fragile character, to be protectors of them, to enjoy their unconditional affection and love and the sheer joy that comes from their delightful presence. But more than just what comes to us by virtue of their life in this world, we are concerned about their eternal souls. We concern ourselves with their place in the kingdom of God And the passage before us is critical to understanding how God views little ones in relation to his kingdom. And so with that in mind, look with me at Luke 18, 15 to begin this familiar account. They were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him, rebuked them, the parents. It was common in Jesus's day for parents to bring their children to prominent rabbis so that they could bless their, so that the prominent rabbis could bless the children, and that's what's happening here. Now, not only did the disciples try to stop the parents from bringing their children, it actually says that the disciples rebuked the parents. And so, is this one of the shining moments for the disciples? No, it definitely is not. So, if you have ever wondered if God could use you, you should be greatly encouraged by the 12 men that he chose, right? <laughs> when, I, when I start to doubt God's uh, ability, me, that's, see, that's a, it's a criticism of God to doubt that he could use us. But if you ever struggle with God using you, remember some of the accounts with the disciples, and you'll be encouraged that God can use you as well if he could use them. So, look how Jesus responds. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. So the disciples rebuked the parents, and then Jesus rebuked the... Oh, come on, guys. The disciples rebuked the parents, and then Jesus rebuked the the disciples. In the parallel account in Mark's gospel, in Mark 10, 14, it actually says, when Jesus saw what the disciples did, he was indignant. So he was angry about this. Now, why was he angry? Well, based on what he said, it seems to be because the disciples' behavior or actions were destroying a spiritual truth that Jesus wanted to communicate. And the spiritual truth could be summed up like this. Infants were supposed to be able to come to Jesus physically because it pictures infants being able to come to him spiritually, not just in this life, but in the next And by preventing infants from being brought to him, it could easily communicate that they do not have access to him. So Jesus makes it clear that infants do have access to him with the words, 
to such belongs the kingdom of God. And those words, to such, are incredibly important. In the NIV, NASB, in the Amplified, it says, such as these. So the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, or individuals like them. And so these words show that Jesus was not only saying that the kingdom of God belongs to the infants that are being brought to him, because if Jesus, he could have just as easily said that only the infants I've blessed have the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God only belongs to those infants I've blessed. But by adding such as these, he's establishing a category and saying that it's not just the infants brought to him in his day, but all infants. The kingdom of God belongs to all infants. And this brings us to lesson one. Jesus said, let the little children come to me because part one, the kingdom of God belongs to them. The kingdom of God belongs to them. I'm not alone. Now, up to this point, you know that I've been teaching that babies go to heaven, but I want to focus just on this passage, and I'm not alone in interpreting this account as a guarantee that the kingdom of God belongs to all babies or infants. When preaching on this passage, John MacArthur said, I'm convinced that this account is absolutely clear that when babies die and children die before reaching the point of personal accountability, which I talked about in a previous sermon, that they go to heaven. And then he said, I've collected all that material in a book called Safe in the Arms of God. I have a copy of that book. I'd be happy to let anyone borrow it. I referenced it different times throughout this series. And so if you have a desire to understand in a deeper way the things that I've talked about, I'd highly recommend that book. John Calvin said, this account gives kingdom citizenship to both children and those who are like children. They have not yet any understanding to desire God's blessing, but when they're presented to God, he gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing. It would be cruel to exclude that age from the grace of redemption. It is an irreligious audacity to drive from Christ's fold those whom he held in his arms and shut the door on them as strangers when he did not wish to forbid them. Charles Spurgeon said, I rejoice to know that the souls of all infants, as soon as they die, speed their way to paradise. Think what a multitude there is there of them. In the parallel account in Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus blessed them. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Mark 10, 16, it doesn't say that here. We know, because we're so familiar with this from the other parallel gospel, or parallel accounts in the other gospels that Jesus did bless them, although it doesn't say it here in Luke. But in Mark 10, 16, Jesus took them in his arms and he blessed them. I want to make two points about this. First, Jesus only blessed the saved, which makes sense because how blessed would someone be if they went where? To hell, right? Or you could say, how blessed would someone be if they didn't end up going to heaven? Now, second, Jesus blessed these babies, but it would seem that if pedo-baptism or infant baptism, so the two views of baptism briefly, pedo-baptism, think of like a pediatrician, that's that same uh, original word there. It refers to infant baptism. Credo-baptism, which is believer's baptism or what we hold to or believe to be biblical, is to say that people have made a creed first. They have confessed Christ. That's our creed. We've confessed Christ, therefore we can be baptized. So credo-baptism. But if infant baptism was true or biblical, we would also expect Jesus to command these parents to have their infants baptism, baptized, Excuse me, but he didn't. Now, 
The question we should ask ourselves is, why would the kingdom of God belong to infants? What is so commendable about infants that God would say the greatest gift is theirs? Well, so let's talk about some of the commendable things about infants. First, infants can be very loving. Typically, they're happy to be held, to be hugged, kissed, sometimes doing these things at very young ages. We have been working with George on getting him to give kisses versus bites. Exactly. It's still an awkward thing for him. It's like, George, give me a kiss, and he's, he doesn't know how to pucker his lips. It's kind of this weird open mouth thing as he leans toward you. Anyway, where am, what am, I, where am I on my notes here? So, okay. Well, so we expect George to be able to grow in this ability to kiss. I'll, I'll go back to the sermon. So. so the point, though, is that infants can be very loving even at very young ages. You can see the affectionate nature they have, that intuitive way that they can cling to their mother before they even know who their mother is. I mean, that's one of the, one of the reasons one commentator suspected that the Lord could do the same thing through an infant in giving that intuitive awareness of our affection toward the Lord at a young age. Second, infants are very forgiving. Even if infants are angry because they didn't get what they wanted, they don't hold grudges. When you return to an infant a little while later, they're not upset with you about whatever it is they didn't get. They don't keep a record of wrongs. They're not going to harbor bitterness. Now, third, infants are very trusting. And trust is synonymous with what? With faith. We use those synonymously, right? We talk about trusting the Lord for salvation or having faith in the Lord Uh, having faith in Christ to be saved. Infants are so trusting that as they get older, you have to teach them to be less trusting, right? You'll say things like, don't talk to strangers. You can't trust everyone. Fourth, infants, they have very sincere motives. There's no pretentiousness with them. If they smile, if they laugh, if they giggle, it's completely genuine. They're not doing it to impress. They're not doing it for popularity. They're doing it for no other reason than the joy that they're experiencing. They don't worry about how they appear to others, which leads me to the fifth thing that I was thinking about infants that makes them commendable, and that's the lack of pride. And I'll go ahead and back up to get a little bit of momentum into this fifth point. So last night, was it last night? Or Friday night, some Mormon missionaries came to our house. Uh, They told me that they were walking around. They went to someone's house, and the person in that house said, hey, you ought to go to this guy's house because he's a pastor, and he'd be happy to talk to you. So I don't know which neighbor in our neighborhood said that, but I was still happy that the Mormons came came to our house. I was upstairs with Katie. The kids ran upstairs like, the Mormons are here, the Mormons are here. And so... so I was like, well, I'll panic. Okay, let's get down there. We've got to go meet with them. And so I grabbed my boys, and we head out on the, on the front porch with them with our, with our Bibles. And I'm talking to them and enjoying my time with them. I'm trying to establish, and they're new ones. You, you guys know that I was meeting with Mormon missionaries for months, and they only stay in the area for a few months. There's a gentleman, uh, President Featherstone, within the Mormon church who decides how long they get to stay, and he'd even come to meet with me. And I asked him, I said, could this gentleman stay longer because I'm enjoying my time with him so much? And that might be why he let this gentleman stay six, six to nine months or something, uh, where the other ones only stay a few months, it seems. And so the, new, the individuals who were there were new, and I was new to them. And so I said, hey, I know, I know a lot of the Mormon, and they're Mormon missionaries. I was meeting with them. And they said, well, what are their names? Who are they? Maybe we know them. And I pull out my phone. I'm like, yeah, I'm friends. You guys have Facebook. 
And they said, yeah, and I'm showing them, like, I'm friends with this guy. And they're like, oh, yeah, we know this guy. And so trying to remember the Mormon missionaries I'm friends with on Facebook. And, and really, I try to um, model or follow Paul's pattern and Mars Hill or in Acts 17 when he speaks to the Athenians because you notice some of the things that he did in his evangelistic efforts. He tries to establish a relationship with people. He is friendly. He was even complimentary toward those people. And so as my boys can tell you, when I'm meeting with these Mormon missionaries, there are things that I can applaud about them. I cannot confirm unbiblical things they believe, but I can applaud their zealousness. I can say that I believe they're very sincere. So I try to offer lots of compliments um, to them. And they, said, and they said they were glad for that because they said some of the pastors they've met with that just want to argue with them. And I said, no, I'd like to do a Bible study with you, but I hope that it can be nice and, and comfortable and pleasant for us. I applauded how zealous they are to be willing to leave their families and go on these mission trips and even raise some amount of money to do so. I established the similarities between us. In this case, our belief in God and they, they would say their confidence in the Bible as well, another commonality between us. And then we moved to discussion of the gospel because it was getting late and they were yawning and I could tell that they were going to have to get back home. So I said, hey, let's just talk about the gospel. Why don't you tell me if you were going to someone's home and they wanted to talk to you, and let's just say they asked, how can I be saved? Or essentially, they've invited you to share the gospel with them. What would that gospel sound like? So I asked these two sitting on my front porch in front of my boys. And one of the young men says, and I quote, we are saved by grace through faith and works. He said, we are saved by grace through faith and works. And I said, well, I don't agree with that, and I don't think the Bible teaches that. And the other missionary quickly objects and says, no, no, that's not what we believe. (laughs) And so he opens the Book of Mormon, and he reads this lengthy passage to us, which looks like about half of it had been taken from our Bibles. And he says, we believe we're saved by grace through faith. And then he reads this passage, and at the end of the passage, I'm not joking, it says that we're saved by grace after we've worked as hard as we can. And I said, that just says that we're saved by works or that God steps in or does whatever we're unable to do, but it's only after we have tried hard enough to be saved. And then he goes, well, and I'm not, you could ask my my boys who are sitting there. He goes, well, I mean, it it sounds like it's saying that, but it's really saying the opposite of that. And I said, well, no. So anyway, we have a real nice conversation with them. Left well. I said, you guys hug. And they said, we hug, shook hands, hug. Hope to, hope to meet with them again. I shared Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with them a few times. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Kind of read it like that to them. You've been saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. Accentuate those parts. So Paul says our salvation, not a result of our own doing, not a result of works. But as we get older, what can we start thinking? You You don't have to be a Mormon to think this you start thinking that maybe you've contributed something to your salvation. You start feeling perhaps like you've been good enough, or perhaps you're elect or you're chosen because God thought you were better than someone else. You, or God knew you would be more religious, or God knew you would be a better Christian, whatever that even means, than others. And so this pride can creep into our hearts. And my whole point in sharing all that is babies do not have this problem. And it brings us to the next part of lesson one. Jesus said, let the little children come to me because part two, they exemplify salvation apart from works. 
They exemplify salvation apart from works. Considering there is no effort or merit on our parts to be saved, infants exemplify this incredibly well. I would even go so far as to say infants are the premier example of the gospel's recipients. They demonstrate divine grace, or you could say they demonstrate unconditional election better than any other recipients. And when I use the term unconditional election, I'm not even trying to use it in a Calvinist versus Arminian sense. I'm using it in the most generic way possible to describe people being elected independently of anything they have done or could do, because you can't find a better example than babies. They have done nothing to be elected, yet they are. They have done nothing to deserve the kingdom of God, yet Jesus says it belongs to them. Look at Luke 18, 9 for a moment. Jesus also told this parable. To some, this is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, we know from when we went over this parable that this is referring to the religious leaders. And that's also obviously why he used a religious leader or a parable or a Pharisee in the parable. They are the ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Because they believed the kingdom of God belonged... Now, follow me on this. Because the religious leaders believed the kingdom of God belonged to those who were good enough or had done enough, or had been religious enough, guess what was detestable to them? Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God belongs to babies. Can you understand that? Can you even imagine why they would not even have the high view of infants that Jesus did? The idea that infants could be saved literally flew in the face of their teaching. When Jesus held these infants and said the kingdom belonged to them, it destroyed the religious leaders' teaching that the kingdom of God belonged to those who worked hard enough or had engaged enough in enough religious activity. Now, along these lines, what do some people struggle with regarding infant salvation? Well, what has an infant done to be saved? When people struggle, with infants salvation one of the questions or even arguments is well how could that be what has an infant done to be saved well let me ask you this what have you done to be saved the answer is nothing for them and for us we have not done more to be saved than infants or another way to say it is infants have not done less than us to be saved Think about the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so you hear the similarity. You've got Luke 18, Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to infants. And now you've got the Beatitudes where Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who know that they have nothing with which they could earn their salvation. Or another way to say it is the poor in spirit are those who do not trust in their righteousness. They have no confidence in themselves or no confidence in the flesh, as Paul said. 
We must get older to become proud. We must grow to believe that we deserve to go to heaven. Jonathan Edwards said, A true Christian is poor in spirit and more like a little child and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. Now, after making the point that the kingdom of God belongs to children and those like them, Jesus presents the other side of this, and he says the kingdom of God does not belong to people who are not like children. Look in verse 17, Luke 18, 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So, Jesus goes so far as to say that if we are not like little children or not like infants, we don't even get to enter the kingdom. So the kingdom of God so clearly belongs to infants that adults must also make a backward journey to become like children to receive the kingdom ourselves. And this brings us to the last part of lesson one. Jesus said, let the little children come to me because part three, the kingdom of God belongs to people like them. And then mark your spot in Luke and turn to Matthew 18. The kingdom of God belongs not just to infants, but to those like them. Matthew 18. Now, when you turn to Matthew, this is not the parallel account to Luke. This is, or in other words, this is not Matthew's account of Jesus blessing the little children in Matthew 18. You don't have to turn there, but that's actually in Matthew 19, I think, verses 13 to 15 because I was looking at that so much this week. This is a separate account in Matthew's gospel from what we're seeing in Luke. But I want to look at these verses because Jesus makes it even clearer here that we must become like children. Look at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is another low point for the disciples because they later argue about which of the disciples is the greatest. Verse 2, Jesus calling to him a child, he put this child in the midst of the disciples, verse 3, and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, or some, some translations even say repent, or are converted, it's even got the language of conversion here, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus went so far to say that if we don't become like children, we cannot even get to heaven. Now, because there's nothing more important than entering the kingdom of heaven, we should ask ourselves what it is about children that we must become like to enter the kingdom. And we get the answer in the next verse. It's humility. Look at verse 4. That's what's required. He said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this is one more reason that the kingdom of God belongs to infants because of their humility. Infants have a wonderful humility. Kind of just going back a little bit in the sermon, you never see infants bragging, boasting, trying to impress. They're never doing anything to show off. And in that sense, we can, as adults, learn from them. And you can understand why humility is necessary to enter the kingdom. It requires acknowledging two things. To be saved requires acknowledging two things. And one of those things is, first, I am a sinner. And there are countless people who are on their way to hell 
because they cannot muster the humility to say those words. There are lots of people on their way to hell because they cannot confess their, single, their sinfulness. Now, the second thing that's required, which also requires humility to acknowledge this, is that we cannot save ourselves. And there are also countless people on their way to hell filled with pride because they believe the world's most common lie, which is what? I am a good person. I am a good person is code for I deserve to go to heaven or I am good enough to go to heaven. And the people who cannot acknowledge that they are not good people, not good enough to go to heaven, do not have the humility to go there. Now turn back to Luke 18, 17. There's an incredibly important word here in verse 17 that I want you to notice, and it's the word receive. Luke 18, 17, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you. And that's always his way. So, so you, everything Jesus says is important. But it seems there are those times when he wanted to make sure we didn't miss something, right? And so what does he first say? Truly, truly, verily, verily. Do other, other translations have another word he's, he says twice? But it's his way of saying, don't miss this. So we're at one of those verses where Jesus says, don't miss what I'm about to say. Which is... Whoever does not receive the kingdom... See, that child was super excited. That's what you heard, an excited child about what Jesus was saying here, a sensitivity toward God's word. Jesus says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, just for a moment, think of the way that infants receive. It does not matter what you hand an infant, they will receive it. And then it often goes where? In their mouths, that's right. Now let's look at this spiritually. Children or infants receive spiritual truths as readily as they receive physical objects. Let me say that one more time. Children receive spiritual truths as readily or easily or willingly as they receive spiritual truths. And I'll give you some examples. Have you ever told a child Jesus loves you? They receive it. They love that truth. They love to be told that Jesus loves them. If you tell children, Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves each of you. They receive that truth super easily, super readily. Tell children, Jesus wants to be your savior. He wants to save you. You will never have a child disagree with you. You will never have a child roll his eyes or roll her eyes. You've got to become a what to do that? An adult. You have to get older to deny these truths or resist them, not receive them. I remember this time years ago when Rhea was young. I don't, I don't remember how old she was at the time. But, and I don't even remember the context or who we were talking about, but we shared with her that there were some people who were not Christians. And Rhea could not believe it. She could not believe that people were not Christians. Why? Because she could not believe that people would not receive that gift or that they would not receive salvation. Who would not want that? Who would not want to be saved? Who would not want to spend eternity with the Lord in his glorious presence? And salvation imagery, it is bound up in the word receive. If you ask a hundred people, what is something you receive? Many of them are going to say a gift. One of the most, you, you know, if you ever watch Family Feud, not that you should watch that or something like that, but we asked 100 people, what is something you receive? 
lots of them, maybe the number one answer is going to be a gift. And that's what salvation is. That's why it's so fitting to talk about receiving the kingdom of God because you receive gifts. Salvation is a gift. Romans 3.24, we're justified by his grace as a gift. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Ephesians 2.9, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works. When Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, you remember he has this exchange with her about physical water? And then he tells her, John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you life-giving water. And this is Jesus's point. We should receive the gift of salvation. He tells this woman, if you knew what I was offering, this gift, you would be asking me for the spiritual water I can give versus that physical water that you want from the well. And Jesus's point is, if you know the gift of salvation, you should receive it as readily as infants receive whatever is given to them. Now let's shift gears for a moment. In conversations about babies going to heaven, one of the most common questions that comes up is, are there any other people in this special category of salvation? If we understand that babies are saved in this unique way, are there any other, and by by unique, I simply mean unique to the typical way people are saved by exercising personal faith, as we talked about last week. Are there any other individuals in this special category of salvation. I told you last week that there probably is, and that's the mentally handicapped, and this brings us to lesson two. The kingdom of God probably also belongs to the mentally handicapped. And I added the word probably in italics, not because I don't believe it or think it, but because I don't have the scriptural support for the mentally handicapped going to heaven like I do with babies. But I do think it is probably the case. And I'll provide some verses so you know why I feel this way. So last week I shared this verse with you, 1 Timothy 4.10, God's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, implying that there are, God is the Savior of some people who don't believe or haven't believed. And in that category, I would put babies or the mentally handicapped, or here's another way to say it. I believe this includes everyone who, through no fault of their own, cannot make the mental assent to believe. Or in other words, are unable, through no fault of their own, to exercise saving faith. It does not seem to me that God would withhold salvation from them. And that would be infants and the mentally handicapped. I don't, it just seems beyond me that he would send individuals who, to hell who did not have the ability to be saved. Also, Jesus said the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children. Now, if you talk to people who deal with the mentally handicapped and you ask them what they are like, what do those people familiar with them frequently say? They're like children, even in wonderful ways. So I chose to talk about the mentally handicapped in this sermon versus a previous one because it fits so well with Jesus' statement that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children, which the mentally handicapped are. Second, consider these verses. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. There are two ways 
unless I'm missing something, and you can let me know if I am, that the word chose is used in the New Testament. One way is to describe those that God has chosen for a special purpose. But the more common way that the word chose or chosen is used is to describe those that God has chosen for salvation or those who have been elected. For example, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, when 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28 describes who God chooses, it could very well be describing those chosen for salvation. And when he's talking about choosing the weak or choosing the foolish for salvation, that could include the mentally handicapped. I definitely want to raise my hand and say, hey, God's talking about choosing the weak or foolish. Well, that's me. That's why I was chosen. So maybe the mentally handicapped as well. But even if the verses are only about those God chose for a special purpose, it's hard to believe that they could be chosen for a special purpose without later being saved. Now, sadly, what does our, ba- what does our world do with Down syndrome babies? People are administ- administered tests so that they can find out if they're having Down syndrome babies so that those babies can be aborted. And I super dislike the word abort or abortion. What word do I want to use? I want to use the word murder. I don't like to use worldly words to describe sinful things. So we should use the word murder. Those are parents who want to take the test so they can murder their, their child. Now, I just want to say something. And I don't, I, this is an opportunity. I didn't have it on my notes. And I'll be super clear about this. If there's ever a young lady in this church who's single and she gets pregnant, to not have an abortion is a courageous thing. To not murder that baby is a courageous thing. Because there are few places where the urge to murder that baby would be stronger than in the church where it w- that fornication would be frowned on. Now, am I, am I remotely minimizing the fornication? No, I'm not. Am I remotely minimizing the sin that brought this child to life? No, I'm not whatsoever. And, and we would never minimize the sin. But we would want to recognize both that life its value, the value of that child, and that it's made in God's image, and then do what we could to support that young lady without minimizing what she's done or even expecting her to acknowledge, perhaps publicly, that what she did was sinful, but then to come around to her and affirm to her our love for her and that child and what we would do as a church family to support her, because I cannot imagine how difficult it would be for a young lady in the church who gets pregnant, that strong temptation to want to then murder that child. Now, even if Down syndrome children are despised by our world, they could have a special place in heaven. Maybe some mentally handicapped people go through this life despised, but have a glorious eternity in store for them in God's presence. And that is a thought that greatly blesses me. Now, I'll share something with you along these lines. I don't know if some of you were at beach camp and you happened to see Katie crying at times. So I was, there was a morning, I, I believe I was actually at the Zumstein's family Bible study, and Katie messages me, and she says, I need you to come see me right now. And I said, well, I'm in the middle of this study. Can I come out of that? She says, no, it's very urgent. So I come down. She's very emotional. She's crying. The doctor had sent Katie this message that we were having a Down syndrome child, that Hudson, Hudson was going to have, Hudson, our son, um, Hudson Taylor was going to have Down syndrome. And so... And this hits Katie at beach camp. She's overwhelmed by the reality of what this means. And just to let you know, some weeks or maybe two months later, she took a more accurate, another test 
that um, seem to reveal that more than likely Hudson does not have a Down, is, that Hudson will not have Down syndrome. But during those weeks or two months that we thought we were having a Down syndrome child, we read lots of medical literature and testimonies from people with Down syndrome children to understand what it would be like for us to prepare for it. I also tried to be prepared spiritually, so I started reading related scripture. And I want to pass along what I learned, and this brings us to lesson three. Lesson three, regarding disabilities, God, part one, is sovereign over them. Regarding disabilities, God is sovereign over them. I'm going to share some verses that encouraged me. You don't have to turn there, but we know that Moses was reluctant to go to Egypt when God sent him. I want you to listen to one of Moses' objections and then God's response to that objection. Exodus 4.10, Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? And then this was the part that greatly encouraged me. God said, Who makes man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, although the mute, blind, and deaf are mentioned... I think it fits the spirit of the passage to also include any babies born with disabilities, including those with Down syndrome. Now, it encouraged me that if we had a Down syndrome child, that that was not an accident. And it's interesting that people can look at the same passage as a scripture and come away with completely different views. One can be encouraged while another is discouraged. So, for example, someone looks at this and God says, who, he's asking rhetorically, who makes man mute or deaf or blind? And the answer is God does. And some people don't like that. I like it because it shows God's sovereignty. I want to know that if we ever had a disabled child, that God is as sovereign over the disabled as the abled. I want to know that God has knit that child together. There's no accident. There was no mistake. And my hope in sharing this with you is that you can be encouraged by God's sovereignty as well should you ever have a disabled child, or as I'm frequently telling you, equipping you for the work of the ministry, should you ever encounter someone who has a disabled or Down syndrome child. And don't, don't, pre- don't start preaching whenever you're dealing with people who are hurting. The, the ministry of presence, the, the silence that you offer is best until that person invites you to share something. So don't come on the scene and then start telling them, hey, let me share these verses with you from Exodus when they're still grieving. Give them time to unload everything that they want and then come prepared with verses to share if they ask for that. Here are other verses that encouraged me. John 9, John saw a man blind from birth and the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So two things about these verses greatly encouraged me as I thought about having a Down syndrome child. First, the disciples assumed that this man's blindness was a result of what? Yeah, his parents' sin. Now, I can only imagine how many parents, when having a disabled child, could wonder what? Did I do something wrong? Have I sinned? Is God displeased with me? And Katie was even doing this. Because when we read about having a Down syndrome child, 
we learned that the likelihood increases if the mother is stressed. And so Katie was wondering, well, have I been too stressed? And then she said to me, well, basically every mother who's already a mother is stressed. <laughs> every woman who's a mother is stressed. And once you get you know, past a few kids up to where we're at, I don't know how Katie could have a child and, and not be stressed. But regardless of that, the point is, it encouraged me that Jesus quickly disputed what the disciples believed. He quickly told them that that was an incorrect view and that it had nothing to do with the parents sinning, but instead had everything to do with God wanting to be glorified or work through, reveal his works through this child. And again, I hope that it would encourage you that if you ever have a disabled child or you ever meet someone who has a disabled child, that God wants his works to be displayed through that child. And this brings us to lesson three. Regarding disabilities, God, part two, wants to use them for his glory. Lesson three, regarding disabilities, God, part two, wants to use them for his glory. So when I read these verses, they encouraged me not just to see the child as a gift from God, but even to see the disability as a gift from God because of the way that God would want to use that disability. So let me say this one more time. We never had any doubt that the child itself would be a gift or was a gift from God, but you could doubt or question whether a child's disability is a gift from God. But when recognizing that God wants his works to be displayed through the child, it allowed me to also view that child's disability as a gift. Now, as Katie and I were reading about having a Down syndrome child, it became evident that our lives were going to change, not just for years, but more than likely for the rest of our lives, because people with Down syndrome children often care for those children for the rest of those children's lives. And so that meant kind of a whole shift. I remember sitting with Katie as she cried and talked at different times about, well, I just had, just had this vision for our future where it was going to be the two of us in the, in the future, and then our children would come over with with their children, and we would have our grand, grandchildren hopefully nearby, but we would have a home, and it would be the two of us to, to be together, and that's, and that's just, it's just a, a dream that I can, I can no longer have because we will always have this child with us. And I sent a message to the elders, and they were all incredibly gracious. I said, I think my ministry here at the church is going to change based on, on what looks to be this reality that we'll have it down. And they were all wonderful about that, very encouraging. We'll do whatever we have to do for this child to become part of our church family. Now, there were three things I shared with Katie that I want to pass along to all of you as well. The first thing that I told Katie was that there was no church that I could imagine wanting to bring a Down syndrome child into more than this one. And I mean that sincerely. When I learned that, or believed, at least during that season, that we were going to have a Down syndrome child, it made me immensely thankful for this church because there is no other church family that I could imagine wanting to bring a Down syndrome child into as much as this one. The second thing that I shared with Katie was I knew that there were going to be unique trials associated with having a Down syndrome child, but I believed that there was no church family that I would rather go through those trials with than this one. And even if we're not having a Down syndrome child anymore, perhaps you can understand why I would be sharing this. One of you could have a Down syndrome child, or one of you could have a disabled child. I hope you could have that same view that I did, that this would be a great church family for that child or for this church to become the family for that child. Or additionally, that because of the trials associated with that child's disability, this would be a great church to be part of 
to experience those trials together. And third, I also thought that there were going to be wonderful ways that God was going to use this child in our church. Now, even though it seems like our 10th child probably does not have Down syndrome, I just want to say that if the Lord ever chooses to bless our church with a Down syndrome child, and let me say that very clearly again, if the Lord ever chooses to bless this church family with a Down syndrome child, I'm completely convinced he will want to use that child in beautiful ways that none of us can imagine. I literally believe that a Down syndrome child brought into our church family will bring a beauty and even glory to our church family that we couldn't know otherwise. I believe our church would be different in wonderful, great ways, whether it's the way beach camp is experienced or or family camp or evening service or worship services or anything along those lines. As, As thankful as I can be for all of the great children God gives us, there would be something unique and beautiful about a Down syndrome child being added to our family. Now, I want to conclude with this. We spent weeks talking about why babies go to heaven. I've had some uh, wonderful conversations with people who haven't agreed with me, (laughs) and and that's fine. I've I've appreciated the attitudes of everyone who's come and talked to me, and I mean that sincerely. And so one of the points I want to get is I know some people might disagree with this teaching that all babies go to heaven. But I'll tell you one thing that no Orthodox Christians disagree with, and it's this, that all adults do not go to heaven. All adults do not go to heaven. It is only those adults who have repented and put their faith in Christ. It is only those adults who humbly approach God like little children who will receive the kingdom of God. So earlier I talked about the special category, those who cannot make that mental assent to believe. Well, I can say this. If you can understand what I'm saying right now, you can make the mental assent to believe. So you would not be excused. The kingdom of God would not belong to you without you exercising faith in Christ, without you doing those two things, confessing your sin And second, acknowledging you cannot save yourself and then looking to Christ to be saved. That is required of you for the kingdom of God to belong to you. That's required for your entrance, whereas it's not for infants or more than likely the mentally handicapped. Now, if you have any questions about anything that I've talked about this morning, I'll be up front after service, and I would consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this brief series, which does conclude this morning about babies going to heaven. I thank you for the topics we've been able to cover. And I know we were, we were in a little, an area that doesn't have as much um, scripture speaking directly to it, Lord. I am, I am convinced about babies going to heaven, but if I have said anything wrong over these weeks, spare your people from anything that was untrue, Lord. I pray it would not bear witness to any of them, but if I've preached your word faithfully, if it has been rightly divided, then I would pray that all those listening to me could be encouraged by these truths and be able to embrace them. And, it all, and I'd also pray, Lord, that should you ever bless our, our, ch- our church with a disabled child that you want to use in glorious and beautiful ways, that you would help all of us to be able to support that family or that couple. If, if there's ever a young lady who gets pregnant out of wedlock, help us to be able to support that young lady, hopefully after you grant her repentance from what she's done. 
um, and that we would see that child being made in your image and likeness, Lord, and the great value that child has. And so maybe this would be a sermon, Lord, that we could reference in the future should you bless us with a disabled child, that it'd be one we're equipped to be able to love and serve that family and that child uh, as that child grows. We do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.